Uh, on Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come to the passage where he institutes uh, the Lord's Supper. And so we want to get kind of a, a, the complete view of it. Requires two passages to do that. First Corinthians chapter 11, also Luke chapter 22. We'll begin in First Corinthians chapter 11. Pick things up in verse 17. Paul writes by the spirit of God. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You say, what's the name of this church? <laughs> for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also uh, delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so take, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many uh, sleep. Some of them had died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And here, two verses. Verses 19 and 20. And he, that is Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we long to not only read your word and not only hear your word, 
But we want it to be written, as your word says, on the fleshly tablets of our heart, given a permanent, working, daily, living place in each one of our lives. And we pray this morning as we turn to this passage, we ask, Lord, that you would give your word that place in our lives. Meet with us powerfully, actively, Lord, in our midst here this morning as we continue our worship of you and the study of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is partaking of the Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. And following that Passover meal, Jesus instituted the ordinance that we know as the Lord's Supper, or sometimes we call it communion. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Why did Jesus establish this ordinance? What's the purpose of it? What is it supposed to accomplish in each one of our lives as Christians? Or is it just some kind of mindless thing that we go through on and, and ritual that we perform every second Sunday of the month or every third Sunday of the month or every Sunday of the month? What's the meaning behind it? Notice that it is a time of remembrance. Verse 19, Jesus said, do this in remembrance. It's a remembrance. So we ask ourselves, what is a remembrance? A remembrance is something that provokes my memory concerning some past event. If you were to come into my office here at the church, you walked into it, you would notice it's lined with bookshelves filled with lots of books. But you'd also notice it was filled with a lot of different objects that are on the bookshelves and line the walls and all of these different things. And they are objects that I have picked up through the years uh, on different traveling that I've done, both near and, and far. And sometimes I think a person, if they walked into my office and saw all of these things all over the place in the office, they might be tempted to think that it's a shrine to travel. Well, you couldn't be more mistaken if you came to that conclusion. It's actually a shrine to a bad memory. I can travel someplace wonderful, have literally the time of my life, and two years later forget that I was ever there. Life is a blur. I mean, it's just one event on top of another event on top of another event. It speeds along. I mean, it really, really moves. And you can only keep so much in the you know, near consciousness of, of your mind. And so it becomes a bit of a blur. So I, knowing that about myself, I like to pick up a little souvenir or a memento of the place. I put it in my office or I put it in my home. And then when I have the time to go over and pick it up and I touch it and I look at it and immediately I remember right where I was that I bought it. 
right on the street corner, right on the hillside that I, or wherever, whatever store it might be that I bought the postcard and all. And more than that, I'll remember what happened on that day, the weather of that day, the architecture of the buildings around where we were, the people that I was with. And all of these things that are just dormant and lost and in there someplace, they're all provoked to life instantly by this souvenir, by this remembrance. I have a, a, is one memento in my office. I have a chunk of lava that I picked up on a lava beach in the big island of Hawaii before I found out it was against the law. I always like to clarify that for those of you from Hawaii. And I picked that up. You, you couldn't get 25 cents for that thing at a garage sale, but it's priceless to me. Because I picked up that piece of lava when we were on vacation. Karen's parents took all of us, the whole family, to Hawaii together. And we're out on this lava beach on the big island, and here is young and old within the family, our kids, the future husbands of our daughters, and there's this water and amazing fish in all these places, and we, you know, we just enjoying the beauty of Hawaii, can't believe the creation of this place and all. And I can pick that piece of lava up, and I can to this day still look right down the shore and see all of the family members, all of us together involved in exploring all of those things. It provokes wonderful memories in my mind. And so it is with every object that I've collected. It said that when Lord Nelson, the great admiral, British admiral, and he was a great admiral, and he was a great man, that when he died and was his body was laid to rest in St. Paul's Cathedral in England, that his casket was carried by men that he had served with in the Navy. And he was really something. He was quite an admiral and he was quite a man. And he had the respect of his people and the nation, of his men and of the nation. And when they went to lower that casket down into the ground, before they did it, they grabbed the Union Jack, these, these, these sailors that had served with him. And they proceeded to take that flag of, of England and they tore it into shreds until each one of them had a piece of that flag. And the reason that they did it was in order that for the rest of their life, whether they kept it in their pocket and they pulled it out or they kept it on a dresser of drawers in their house, for the rest of their life, it would remind them of, uh, of this great admiral. And all the history that they had had with him, all that they had been through with Admiral Nelson. And so it is with communion. It's designed to provoke a memory in our lives. And the value isn't in the physical cracker or in the physical grape juice. Those are like a lava rock. You couldn't get 25 cents for it if you tried to sell it at a garage sale. You can't have humbler symbols 
of Jesus' body and blood. You can't have humbler symbols here to, to provoke the, the memory. The value is not in the element of the symbols themselves. The value is in the memory that they provoke within us. As we think about our Savior, and think about His body, and we think about His blood, the bread is a symbol reminding us of Jesus' body given for us. He tells us there, which is given for you. And the idea is given for your benefit. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. The cup is a symbol representing Jesus' blood that's been shed for us. It represents his life given for us. When you read about blood in the Bible, sometimes people are new to the Bible or they're not Christians yet, and they think of Christianity as this bloody religion, and they talk about the blood of Christ and the blood and the blood, and they don't get it. It's because you're not a Jew. You haven't been influenced by the Old Testament yet. In the Jewish mind, the blood spoke of life. Jesus said in the Old Testament, or God said in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the life is in the blood. You don't have life without blood. So it represents life. So when we read about Jesus' blood being shed for us, it's talking about the fact that his life was given for the forgiveness of our sins. You don't have to make the bread and the cup more than they actually are, simply Bread and wine or grape juice symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus as some do in teaching what is known as transubstantiation. That is that they teach that when we partake of these symbols of Jesus's body or blood, they don't consider them to be symbols, but that when you eat the crack, you're actually eating the literal body of Jesus and that when you drink the cup, you're drinking his literal blood. So there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, notice that in verse 18, that the wine that was being used on that evening is clearly described by Jesus as being the fruit of the vine. It never became blood. It was wine and always was wine. Additionally, when Jesus institutes that institutes the first Lord's Supper, he sits there completely intact. His body is intact. His blood is intact. Things will change on the following day, but that wine and that that bread didn't become something different on that evening. And third, again, if we're going to think about it from a Jewish standpoint, no Jew would cause any other Jew to ever drink blood. It's absolutely forbidden in the law of Moses to drink even an animal's blood as a Jew, much less to drink human blood. And Jesus, who came into the world to fulfill the law of Moses, would never lead a single human being into violating the law of Moses in any way. And I think that what would be required, I mean, if you sat down and you just read this on the surface, it would never enter into your mind to say that this has become his actual body or his actual blood. Someone has to introduce that thought into our minds for us to even begin to, that it would even be in our minds at all. And I think all of it comes from 
trying to give some extraordinary value to the symbol, to the elements, when the point is, the intention is to provoke memories within us about Jesus, about the cross, that are more priceless to us, that we feel more than we could feel about anything else, that even if this did become His body and His blood. We don't have to make this into something more than the Scripture tells us that it is. To be deeply moved, to be pricelessly moved in our heart in thinking about our Savior and the cross. God's big on memorials. All the way through the Old Testament, He's got these memorials. One memorial that He gives is the rainbow. We just see the rainbow and we think nothing of it. We're just so used to seeing it. But it's a memorial that's given by God. He gave it as a memorial to Noah and to mankind through Noah. God said, that's rainbow when you see it after a storm. It's a mark of my covenant with you that I will never again destroy the earth by way of flood. And every time a storm comes and the rain falls and the rain stops, and we see that rainbow. It is God's reminder to us that he's being faithful to his promise. If we did not have that promise and we did not have the memorial of the rainbow. Every time it rained. Ah! We would wonder, is this going to be a 40 day and 40 nighter? And we're all going to be destroyed. I mean, we'd be anxious every time it began to sprinkle. But we're not. Because God has given us a memorial. In the Ark of the Covenant, that holiest of all of the furnishings in, in the tabernacle and in the temple of the Jews, inside of that Ark of the Covenant, along with the two tablets of stone, with the Ten Commandments of Moses, was also a pot of manna. And it was given, God instructed them to put that in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder to God's people of how he had provided for them 40 years as they wandered into the wilderness. To remind them of the fact that he was and he is a, a faithful God. When Moses or, or Joshua came, led the children of Israel in the crossing of the Jordan River. And they crossed that Jordan River in a great miracle of God. God said, I want you to build a monument on the on the promised land side of of that river. And I want that to be a memorial of the great miracle that I did for you here to remind people of what it is that I've done on your behalf. The Feast of Passover is a memorial. The Feast of Tabernacles is a memorial. And you think to yourself, why is God so big on memorials? He's big on memorials because He knows you and me. He knows how prone we are to forget even the most amazing things about Him. Again, the most priceless things about Him. How they can get buried under just the hustle and bustle of life and the nothingness of life and the things that are going to vanish in a moment in human history. 
And he knows about us. Even when we're young, it gets worse as we get older. That as time goes on, we don't possess memories. We possess forgetteries. We need things to remind us of things that we would otherwise forget. Allow me to briefly give you seven things that partaking of the Lord's Supper is to accomplish in our lives as Christians. In verse 19, number one, it's to remind us of Jesus. He didn't just say, do this in remembrance, you notice. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that God keeps the main thing, the main thing in Christianity. And it's one of the ways that God keeps the main thing, the main thing in a local church. And that he keeps the main thing, the main thing in an individual Christian life. And the main thing about Christianity is Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. And so this is the way that he keeps us reminded of in our own personal Christianity, how it is that God has saved us and, and, and to remind us that Jesus is preeminent in what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not supremely about Christian service, about attending church, as important as those things are. Christianity is about Christ. And surely church history has taught us how easily he is forgotten, even in the midst of what is called Christian. Jesus can be lost in the middle of all of it. You don't have to go to Europe. You don't have to go to Russia. You don't have to go to South America. You can do it in the United States. But how often you can walk into a cathedral, into a church, and as you look around at the whole thing that's happening there in terms of whatever they've turned the cathedral into or even into a service like this and sit and listen to what's being spoken and you can end up asking yourself, where is Jesus in all of this? In the book of Revelation, God, Jesus wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea. Here was a church that was so full of itself so full of being man-centered and man-focused. It wasn't about God anymore. It was about good people becoming better. It was all about how great we are. The whole focus upon man, upon material things. And Jesus writes to them and he describes himself as being on the outside of that church, knocking on the door, trying to get inside. And they don't have the foggiest idea that there's something wrong with what they're in the middle of. I'll guarantee you they didn't partake of the Lord's Supper long, often enough at the church of Laodicea. Because Christ was lost completely in that church. Apparently it's possible to forget about Jesus in all of this. And the Lord's Supper keeps that from happening. And it's not just true of churches. Churches are easy to pick on. But the same thing can be said of an individual Christian's life. Whose life looks nothing like Christ. Long ago ceased to be conformed in the image of Christ. Now looks no different than the lives of anyone that doesn't know the Lord out there 
in the world. And we can look in our life and say, where in the world is Jesus in all of this? Now, the fact of the matter is we need a regular reminder that Christianity is Christ. It's all about a personal relationship with him. And so the Lord's Supper keeps the main thing, the main thing, that this is all about Christ. So we don't turn around one day and we're as prone to it as anyone and find Jesus on the outside knocking. And we don't have the foggiest idea that there's anything wrong with that scenario. Number two, it's a time of retrospect, a time when we look back in our lives and we look at all that Jesus did on the cross in order for us to be saved. The price he was willing to pay in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. It's a time to think about those, that scourging that he took that morning. It's a time to think about the beatings that he took that morning. Two beatings. One at the hands of the Gentiles, the Romans, one at the hands of the Jews. And the beatings were so severe, Isaiah tells us, that as he hung upon that cross, if you had seen him teaching the day before in the courtyard of the temple, and you were to walk by and see that man that was crucified on that center cross, you could not identify him as the man you had seen yesterday. He was literally unrecognizable for the person that he was. All that happened before the cross. And then there's the spit that was heaped upon him. The blasphemies that were heaped upon him. The crown of thorns, the nails through his hands and his feet, and the cross, his thirst. And then his loneliness. I never partake of the Lord's Supper without thinking about his loneliness on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All in order that you and I might be saved. It's a time for us to look back on our own salvation story. To remember the who, what, where, when, why and how of how he saved you. And to marvel at it once again. To think about, as so often happens when we come to know the Lord and we look back upon our lives. And we see he's been at work in our lives for decades in many cases before we came to know him. And there are things that are common denominators to all of our salvation stories. And that's the Savior and the work of the Holy Spirit. But to realize that for every single one of us, our story of our path and how he brought us to a place of seeing our need and trusting in the Savior that God had sent. It is unique in human history. And to think about how many billions of people are in this world and he keeps track of all of them endeavoring to do the same thing in every single one of them. And you have your story that is unlike anybody else's story. And to remember that story. It's priceless. There's only one just like it. And it's a time when we're reminded of the completeness of our forgiveness and the completeness of our forgiveness only because of Jesus. Romans chapter five, 
Verse 20, Paul wrote, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And communion is a time when we remember that all of our past sin is completely covered and completely washed away by the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. No more need to live a life of shame. No more need to live a life of daily being reminded of my guilt. And we've sung about it even today. To be able to look back in the past and you say all of the mementos that I have on my shelves, anywhere that I would look back as a Christian, it wouldn't provoke any pleasant memories for me. They would be only unpleasant memories. But once we've come to know Christ, we become a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. And we have the privilege, the permission by God to look back in our past and see all of it covered by the blood, the sacrifice of Christ. And then to realize even the greatness of our sin being covered by his sacrifice, it makes us love him all the more. And so we're able to remember that all of that is forgiven and it's been washed away from our lives And it fills us with a great appreciation. Number three, it's a time of introspection as well as a time of retrospect. It's a time of self-examination or Holy Spirit examination. For any kind of willful sin that is in my life as a Christian that I've grown comfortable with. And then for the Holy Spirit to say, what's that doing here? What are you doing getting comfortable with that? In the light of the elements that we are about to take, in the light of the sacrifice that was given, the greatness of this sacrifice, not only to cleanse us of our past sin, but to allow the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, to give us the power to live a life different from this world, to live a Christ-like life. And what in the world, in the light of the price that was paid, not only for us to be forgiven, but to live a new kind of life, are you allowing that into your life this morning? And immediately, as the Holy Spirit convicts us, we say, that looks nothing like Christ. You're right. I want nothing to do with it. It dishonors the sacrifice. I confess it as sin, and I repent. And it keeps holiness as a priority in our individual lives as Christians. And it keeps the standard of holiness high in a local church, which is very important as the world gets more and more unholy Around us. It's also a time of prospect, a time when we stop once again and remember that Jesus is coming back for us one day, even as we have sung. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, as we read it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Always when we partake of the Lord's Supper, God wants there to be that reminder that Jesus is coming back again for us. This is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims here. This is not as good as it gets for us. 
And in the midst of the trials and the temptations that we go through in this world and the trials and the temptations that we go through uniquely as Christians going against the stream of this world, God knows that on a regular basis we need to be reminded of the fact that He is coming back to have the eternal dimension returned back into our lives because of the tendency to be sunk by the small, smallish, by comparison, circumstances that we find ourselves in the middle of. So it's a time for the Holy Spirit to reintroduce an eternal perspective back into our lives. Jesus is coming back for us. It could happen at any time. I can't be reminded of that often enough. Now, it helps me to remember concerning the Lord's Supper. Those three words that I've just spoken about here, that it is a retrospect of looking back at the greatness of Christ's forgiveness. It's an introspect, an examination of my life for sin. And it's a prospect of looking forward and looking ahead to Jesus's return. Because what it causes me to realize concerning the sacrifice of Jesus is that he has thought of everything in terms of our salvation. What he has done for us on the cross, in his burial, and in his resurrection has completely overwhelmed our past, our present, our future. There isn't anything that is, is not affected by, is not dominated by, as a Christian, the sacrifice of Christ for us. He has thought of everything. One of the things that I look at concerning Jesus as our Savior and the Savior that God has provided for us, and all of the salvation that is found in Him, I think to myself, no one but our Creator could know us so well as to send us a Savior that so perfectly matches our needs and is able to overwhelm our past, our present, and our future as He has done. Number five, it's a time for us to remember that this new covenant or this new relationship, verse 20, that we have with God is based solely upon the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because this relationship that we have with God is based solely upon Jesus' sacrifice, it is a sure covenant, and thus it is a sure salvation. That God has provided for us. In Old Testament times, if you wanted to enter into a contract or a covenant with another man, one man to another, let's say, an animal would be sacrificed. The animal would be cut right down the middle. Half of the animal would be laid on one side. The other half of the animal would be laid on the other side with a path between the two. And then the two individuals that were entering into a covenant would each in turn then make their way down the path between the sacrifice. They would essentially do a figure eight and they would then enter into a covenant with one another, a covenant based upon each one of their words that they would keep the agreement that they had made. God does something interesting with Abraham in the Old Testament. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants in number as the sand of the sea. You're not going to be able to number them. And further, I'm going to bring those people into the promised land. 
God said to Abraham, uh, it, it spoke to him and said, I am going to do this for you. And then God spoke to Abraham and he said, I want you to take a series of sacrifices. Take these sacrifices, these animals, cut them in half, lay them on either side, uh, as I've just explained to you, as a part of making a covenant one with another. And then God put Abraham in kind of this spiritual state as he's watching this whole thing. And then interesting in this covenant that God was making with Abraham, only God went between the sacrifices. Abraham never went behind between the sacrifices. And what God was communicating Abraham was this. The fact that there will be descendants that come from you that will be without number, that will constitute a nation that will glorify me. And the fact that you will one day end up in the promised land and it will be your own is dependent completely upon me. I make this promise to you. It is not dependent on you doing anything, keeping anything, believing anything. It is completely determined by the fact that I've given the promise and I will keep it. That is known as a one-sided covenant. Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and he describes the relationship that we have with God, the salvation that we have with God as a covenant based upon his blood. It is a covenant and a relationship that is based upon his blood alone, not upon his blood and church attendance, not upon blood and keeping the Ten Commandments, not upon blood and Christian service, not upon blood in the sacraments, not upon blood in anything. This salvation that God has provided for us in the blood of Christ is a sure salvation because God couldn't make it any more one-sided and loaded toward God than He did by leaving you and I out of our salvation except for receiving it as a free gift. And because it's based solely on His blood, it's a sure salvation. That's why the old saying is concerning salvation with religion. It's always do, do, do. Christianity is different. It's done, done, done. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. Not it is begun. It is a finished salvation that has been given us as Christians. And because it's a finished salvation, it's a sure salvation. Then six, it's also a time during which we're to check and see if our attitude toward our fellow Christians is healthy and Christ-like. And to remember that though they're not perfect, and none of us is perfect, they're still loved by Christ, and they are still blood-bought. And the Lord's Supper is a time when we're reminded of God's great love for all. All Christians in this room, in this city, all around the world. His love for the entire body of Christ. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when the Apostle Paul writes to them on the subject of the Lord's Supper, he warns those who were causing division in that local church out of their selfishness and out of their carnality to stop doing it. He said, or else God's going to judge them. And that God had already judged some of them with sickness. 
and with death. And what was their sin? Their sin is an interesting one. Not discerning the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? Christians. Christians. Blood-bought Christians. The circumstance was this. Those old days, the early church, typically on a Sunday they would have, we would call it a potluck, but you can't call anything luck as a Christian. So they used to call it an agape feast. It was kind of the one day that slaves could get off and rich people could get off and powerful people could get off and come together and study the word and worship together. And they would have this great meal before they would would come together and then they would partake of the Lord's Supper as well. And here you have all these well-to-do people that were coming in and they were putting down their picnic blanket and opening up their picnic baskets and they're eating an absolute feast in front of a, a, a significant portion of the early church were slaves. The slave owners didn't say, here, I've got your picnic basket full of quiche and chicken and whatever else you want to have so when you go there you won't be left out. They'd come hungry. That agape feast was for many Christians the one great filling meal they would have all week long. And in Corinth, these people, rather than sharing, they'd eat that this whole thing while these other people were looking with these gigantic eyes wishing they could have a drumstick. And they didn't think anything about what they were doing. And they had no consciousness in their mind. That God loved these other people as much as God loved them. God died, Jesus died for these other people just as much as Jesus died for them. And so Paul said, don't be doing this kind of stuff. If you're that hungry, eat at home. And then come and don't eat so that everyone can be on, or share it, so everyone can be on the same level at the services. They're failing to recognize All that Christ did on the cross in order to unite us and to make us one people. And now here's these group of people that are going to divide a local church over food, over their selfishness and their carnality. Well, it's not just food that can divide a local church or break relationships between Christians. Lots of things can happen. And I think that one of the reasons for the Lord's Supper is to continually expose the pettiness and the carnality and the smallness of things that we allow to divide us from other Christians in the light of the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus made personally that we might be one people in one body. And so I look at that thing that I hold against another brother and sister. And I'm unwilling to let that thing go. And I put that little thing up against that cross and that Savior. And it's intended to make me feel small. That I would hold on to it. And the light of how much I have personally received by this sacrifice. And it's a healthy influence in a local church. It's a healthy influence in our lives. And so 
I think it's intended in a sanctified way to convict us and to shame us in that way. And you say, well, I think you're you know, overstating the importance of all that. Amazingly, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth there, he spoke of those who refused to turn from being this kind of an influence in that local body. And God was making some of them sick and some of them because they would not change their influence to a healthy influence in that local church. He just took them home to heaven. Now, that's serious business. And then the seventh and final reason, verse 19, for the Lord's Supper is it's a time of thanksgiving and a time of praise. And he, Jesus, took bread and he gave thanks. It's a time for us to be refocused as Christians upon how much we have to be thankful for. And how much we have to be thankful for as Christians that is way beyond the reach of the circumstances of this world. The things that can never be taken away from us. The things that are permanent in our lives. I think that when we take in general as Christians the Lord's Supper in a local church, typically the atmosphere is... Very respectful, very reverential, and that's appropriate. But I'll tell you the truth, I could walk into a church service where the Lord's Supper is being served and everybody's been handed a kazoo and everybody's blowing it in thanksgiving to the Lord and enjoy it just as much. Sure, the respect is good. The reverence is good. But we must never, ever forget the fact that this is also a celebration, a time of giving thanks to the Lord. And God has given us so much to be thankful for. So which of all these things should you make your meditation this morning as you celebrate in the Lord's Supper? That is between you and the Holy Spirit. We just prime the pump and then we leave that between you and God. If you sit here today and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet trusted in Jesus as your savior. This partaking of this is reserved for Christians. So why not become one this morning? Why not believe God's assessment about you that you're a sinner and in need of a savior? And why not trust in the Savior, Jesus, that God has sent into the world to provide you with forgiveness, to overwhelm your past, your present, and your future, and put your trust in Jesus here this morning, and just to say in your heart to the Lord, Lord, what that guy was saying, that's me, that's what I want. And when a person puts their faith in Christ for salvation, God Almighty and the Holy Spirit comes into their life. It can happen. It happens in an instant. It can happen before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And then you can partake of the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we will serve uh, communion. And uh, as the uh, elements are passed out uh, and take the cracker and hold on to it because we'll pray together and partake together. 
take the cup ultimately and hold on to that because we'll also pray together and partake uh, together concerning that as well.